Welcome to the Imbalance podcast series, hosted by Brady Technologies, your guide to short-term power markets in Europe and beyond. How are you guys doing today? How are things? Really good. Cool. Good, thanks, Razor. Yeah, nice and sunny. Um, so... Today, what I wanted to talk about was first a bit about forecasting, um, which is quite interesting, especially because it's so incredibly important when it comes to uh, an energy grid that has so much more renewables. Then that kind of leads on to data. Um, So I know you guys spend a lot of time working with data sources, especially. um, So I'd like to uh, touch that a bit. And then, Chris, I know you've apparently visited the Eden Project down in Cornwall um, recently. And you mentioned they're building a geothermal plant. So let's let's finish up with that one. Yeah, well, we'll link that on renewables then. Okay, cool, cool. Brilliant. So kicking it off, uh, just talk about forecasting. Uh, I noticed about a month or so ago in the Belgium short-term market, there was a spike in prices from about, for briefly, for an hour, there was a spike from a, about 100 uh, euros a megawatt hour all up to about 1,900 euros per megawatt hour. And the reason that happened is because a pump storage facility was taken offline. Um, of course, naturally, you do obviously take these things offline for maintenance. But the only remaining power, well, the majority of the remaining power for the grid was renewable. And that was hit by a sudden drop in the availability of um, of wind. So that kind of drives home the idea of how important it is to understand exactly what the wind is going to be doing and, and also the solar. Yeah. So... I kind of wanted to ask you guys if you could give us some more information about forecasting, how it's done, why it's so important, and what the challenges are. Okay, so I'll, I'll begin on that one. Um, for, forecasting has been going on for a long time, Fraser. So if you think about um, demand, there's always been customers, um, there's always been businesses, and they, they off-take um, energy based on their usage rather than a fixed price contract. So demand forecasting functions have been in existence since the start of the electricity grid. Um, But what what has become equally important to this demand forecasting is renewables forecasting. And renewables forecasting is done at two places. One is when you have your own portfolio of um, PPAs, offtake or, or assets that you own, you want to forecast exactly how much energy you have coming in to your, to your systems so that uh, you can balance your portfolio. Now, the other part of it that's equally, if, if not more important, is a lot of people out there forecast what the national um, production of renewables is. And they compare that to what the TSO thinks the national production is so that you have a really good understanding of the balance of the overall energy system. And so if you know the balance of the overall energy system, you know the way the prices are going and you might be able to get some arbitrage opportunities. So so an example of this would be if the TSO, uh, National Grid in the GB case, was expecting there to be a large amount of wind and there was a, a marginally oversupplied system, they might be predicting that imbalance or cash out prices would be very low from that. 
However, if you had a better national forecasting system of renewables and you thought that National Grid had got it slightly wrong, you might be able to predict quite cleverly that the system was actually going to go short with that under prediction, which would really spike the imbalance price up. So what you could then do is buy some power in the wholesale market and then spill it onto the system to receive the imbalance price. And that kind of price knowledge from forecasting, I think, is really important nowadays. What do you think, Murray? Absolutely. I'm just thinking of all the different types of generation out there. If you're thinking of the thermal generators as well, having this and that little bit of knowledge about what renewables are doing and just that, that little bit of advantage over what the what the national forecast is doing, you can you can effectively alter your dispatch decisions to take advantage of opportunities that you foresee coming later in the day or later in the, later in the next hour or so. So it's definitely there's definitely going to be a market out there, and we're starting to see it with um, the number of people who are trying to forecast or or out forecast national grid so that they can have, take competitive advantage out of this. And who's providing the forecast to national grid? Is that the Met Office? I'm actually not sure who where national grid get their forecast for. They they have a they have a lot of internal models that I'm okay. aware of, Murray. I think they buy in some services on data, but they have a lot of their own internal models as well. Interesting. So it's kind of an arms race against the centralized uh, national grid, effectively. And so, how do you guys know how you can do it better? Um, is it with AI, machine learning, um, hiring more quants? I have seen that done. What I've also seen of late is the increased frequency which people are receiving their forecasts and I think back 10 years ago you were maybe receiving an updated sort of forecast two to three times a day and so you could be eight hours out whereas it, now it seems that people are getting their forecasts hourly or even shorter granularities than that so if you're on the generation side of that so if you you're a wind farm owner and you're getting your forecast through every hour, then your forecast bound to be far more accurate than it was two, three years ago. And I only envisage that that time span getting shorter as we move forward and as we see increasing price volatility. So could you potentially see a live continuous feed of a forecast just constantly updated? Potentially, but at some point you still need the fact that such a system or a trader has to react to this constantly changing and be able to make a decision on the back of that. And how far out are we forecasting? Is this just for intraday or are we looking day ahead or even weekend ahead? Uh, probably um, if you were looking at um, wind and re general renewables, people start looking about seven days out. Is my experience so you start refining your interreap position it gives you an idea of like changing outages on dispatchable power stations to match that renewables forecast and then that allows you essentially to go into the day ahead where most of them are monetized with a relatively strong position and of course with the the forecast of the pv um that will have an underlying um kind of knowledge of, of the fact that during the day it's generally higher output um and they'll have the times that the sun comes up and the sun goes down and then it comes down to cloud cover which is a shorter term model and how much is cloud cover so in my mind for the national grid or the gb grid wind forecasts are key how much is cloud cover for solar important? How much is that forecast important for the guys trading short-term markets? 
So in my history, Fraser, what I've what I found is um, the the PV is generally dispersed enough that if if it's a slightly cloudy day, then it's it's not going to have a dramatic effect because it's not going to be cloudy over every PV element um, at the same time. If it's a hugely cloudy day, which is quite forecastable, then you're going to have significantly reduced um, generation from the from the PV. And again, you're going to you're going to kind of know that. But weirdly, on the demand side, you see significant demand concentration. Um, around that kind of southeast London area. So if a large cloud system goes over London, you can really see a change on the opposite end from cloud cover, where you suddenly get that increase in demand because of the you know the, the office lights all turning up, etc. And is this just guys looking at spreadsheets and numbers, or are they looking at maps of what's happening in the Atlantic, those, those uh, weather systems coming in as well? I think it's, it can be a combination of both, both Fraser. I know there's a number of, com- of energy companies actually employ their own meteorologists these days who are taking some of these forecasts and doing some sort of interpretation of it for the trader. But at the same point, the trader's likely to be looking at what's happening, the forecast they've been sent and they're getting on the desk. And so does it make more sense to get your own meteorologist or to get the data from an external party? So it, it's kind of a combination of the two. So um, when I was running trading desk before, when I was at EDF, um, we had meteorologists all along, um, but we were very much focused on temperature in winter to start with, because there's a huge correlation between temperature in winter and the demand of power and gas during that, that kind of heating element of it and then what we did is we gradually moved their focus into understanding the interpretation of the data we were getting in from our renewables forecasting but actually what we gradually migrated to is a paid-for service from specialists who would give a bespoke service to each of our renewable assets um, and you'd be able to then bring them in and and see what those forecasts were and we had some internal models to, to kind of tested against but there's quite a lot of good specialists out there in renewables forecast now so most of the clients that brady now talk to are buying from a select few kind of premium renewables forecast providers yeah i think one thing on top of that is that is just due to the sophistication of some of these models people are actually able to do it to the exact coordinates of people's assets so you are getting a very very localized forecast well, that's pretty impressive. Um, and I guess one more question, guys, just in forecasting. Um, rainfall for hydroelectric assets, uh, uh, maybe not so important for the GB market, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is that as complex as sort of cloud cover and wind forecasting, or um, is it less complex? So, so Fraser, what I've found when I've traded internationally over in Canada and also looked at the Scottish assets is, um, yes, it's very important to get rainfall, but it's a longer term thing because most of the time hydro has got an element of storage upstream when they open up the, the kind of gates. So therefore, there's a lag effect. And so it's more like long run averages than instantaneous rainfall. Oh, okay, interesting. Interesting. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a forecasting, but on a different time frame. Cool. Thanks, guys. Well, that kind of ties into the next uh, topic one I want to discuss, um, sort of data sources. Obviously, you get forecasting data from um, alternative parties or your own databases. For the GB grid, especially the national grid, um, I've noticed one of the DSOs recently, uh, Western Power Distribution, has launched their own data portal where they provide data on that specific uh, small section of the grid, including consumption, generation, network loads. 
And then also UK Power Networks, which is a different DSO in the market, has also released their own DSO dashboard. And I know on a broader level, you have companies like Anapsis and LCP, um, especially LCP, because they provide quite a lot of other data as well, including energy market data. And I know you you will be working with these data providers to bring them into training systems and so forth. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. How important is it to traders for these DSO dashboards? What's more important? What kind of data do you think they require? And, um, and anything else you wanted to add? So I'll start on this one, Chris, if that's all right. I think um, it's interesting to see that what the DSOs, those two DSOs are starting to do. But if I think about it from my own trading experience, I was probably looking at things at a national basis rather than at a local area. But I know, for, I, I see as we go forward and the market splits maybe more down to looking at the local area, the need for that data will increase. So I imagine we've got two of them doing it at the minute but I can only see this increasing over time. I I agree, Murray. But I think at the moment, we're very much in market design mode still. I know um, a couple of um, products have been created at the DSO level, and it's seen as the burgeoning market. But really, I think the the exercise here that we're doing is we're making sure that we, we can understand what might be done and look for external solutions to the DSO balancing problem. I would be worried if all that data became so readily available when markets existed, because then I would start thinking about the fact that um, most of those markets will be non-competitive because they're going to be locational. So if you think about locational bids in the in the GB national balancing mechanism, they are subject to regulation on price gouging because there's limited competition. So if you ended up with um, so much transparency of data and data flows in the DSO, we'd really have to understand, would that make it a regulated market with regulated pricing? Or could you anonymize it slightly and try creating a competitive market? I think it's definitely one to understand as it develops. So if you guys are trading today, would you be looking at these DSO dashboards every day to make your trading decisions? Or would you look at a more grid-wide dashboard to get that data? Personally, I would probably look at the DSO one occasionally. My focus would still be on the on the the main network and what was happening on there. That's what I'd be looking to make to make some of my decisions based on rather than something that's happening at quite a local level. Yeah, I think I think when when I created my own distribution energy business as part of EDF in PowerShift, I would have people looking at the DSO markets for selling options into the DSO on a time scale of kind of daily to weekly. But in terms of the the balancing and the energy complex intraday, it's very much national price led at the moment. So I wouldn't be looking at those dashboards from a trader point of view. It would be more from a, the equivalent of an ancillary bidding service from a distributed desk. Interesting. And, that, and interconnector markets and European data, would you be looking at those? Everyone looks at them and have done for 20 years, definitely. Okay. So I, I would I'm kind of getting the sense here, the guys, for databases and data, you be you need forecasting data, you need a good forecasting model to be competitive, and at the same time you need market data, um, demand, uh, supply, and so forth, which will come from you're all going to be focused on the national grid level. And then lastly, I guess the question would be for prices. What are you most interested in? Because I know there's long term. 
uh, for futures prices. There's spot prices. I'm paying for electricity now. There's intraday day ad prices. What would you more look at for that? So on on that Fraser, the you've obviously got the outturn prices of um, EPEX or Norpool, the exchanges. Um, but actually, I'd be I would be looking at the um, the data showing what prices assets had charged for flexibility historically versus what was taken by the TSO, which then derived into a cash out or imbalance price, which would then be a leader for the continuous price. And this is the kind of work that's gone on since in the GB. NITA started in 2001, but then is summarized by some, some really good price reporting agencies, like, for example, LCP and ACT. And as Brady deliver PowerDesk, we'll be overlaying price data and market flows data from either your, your own IP, some of the work we're doing, or a partner who could provide the data to you, like LCP and ACT, will overlay it without, with your trading position, as well as what's going on in the exchanges, so you'd have that central command center to do all of your risk management. Now, with the DSO data, that we are going to be included, but at the moment, I just don't see that as a liquid market that people are going to be taking lots of risk in, but as it develops, as the EV build-out comes in, and as people swap to heat pumps from their combi boilers that's when i see that we would start to go in all of those markets and that's when i predict automation of trading and how far out do you think that's going to be automation of trading at the moment is happening on the national level mm. a burgeoning dso market will happen within the next five years but i couldn't say when okay so then i guess that kind of nicely ties us into our final topic today chris um we talk about heat pumps so the G7 summit's happening in Cornwall uh, next month, uh, beginning of June or mid-June. Um, just comment, apparently it's going to be carbon neutral, which is great. But more interestingly, um, the Eden project, which has been around for years and years and years in Cornwall, has just started drilling into the earth for a geothermal project. So they're drilling down 4.5 kilometers or 2.8 miles to generate, and I think that's still 3.3 to 4 megawatts. I think that's still what the the production will be, but it's a test project to see how um, applicable it is. And my personal experience with this, I've from Johannesburg, so I, I've I've heard of the Vitvodesvand um, uh, gold mines, and I know it's very very hot down there. And I understand, Chris, that you recently visited the Eden Project in Cornwall. So I'd love to just get your views on that as a visitor, obviously, but also your views as an expert in energy markets. How relevant do you think geothermal is going to be? Do you think it's a flash in the pan, pun intended, I guess? Or do you think this is going to be a solid piece of the energy mix in the future? Thank you, Fraser. Yeah, so I was I was lucky enough to be staying down in um, Devon last last weekend, and uh, I popped across to Cornwall to visit the Eden Project with my partner on Sunday, which is a fantastic day out, and I'm sure lots of people will be going there this year. Um, I didn't see the 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 hole, and definitely was was lucky there. I didn't want to fall down that deeper hole, but um, geothermal is um, something really interesting because. The one thing that um, is, is always going to be mentioned when you talk about renewables like wind, like solar, etc., is the intermittency. And so geothermal hasn't got intermittency. It's got um, a baseload output. It's pretty continuous. So to have a source of energy which is essentially continuous yet renewable is something that could be a bit of a game changer. In in the actual plans for the Eden project, they're obviously going to, they're looking to use um, steam to turn that into electricity but the other thing we shouldn't think about is local heat networks 
as well and the fact that rather than turning it into electricity if you could also turn it into heat to to take around the various projects or the, the neighboring areas that would be very strong as well i think the key thing about creating a baseload renewable source is going to be that that um it would be a really great way to pair up with things like heat pumps because they generally run continuous uh, with a low level background of heat or it's something that could be added to the UK grid mix and paired with things like batteries so that you could turn a continuous supply of electricity into something that's much more shaped to demand. So I, I for one, think the output of the uh, geothermal is really, really interesting to the energy complex. It's just going to be a case of whether the cost can be sufficient to justify the investment. And flexibility markets, do you think that will have an impact on flexibility or balancing markets? I think that at the moment you've got a very strong backbone of nuclear output, which is baseload in the UK. Adding in geothermal or displacing some of it with geothermal will therefore create a big need for flexibility markets. Interesting. And then I guess some question follow on. So I understand in in Iceland there's a lot of geothermal which actually powers aluminium smelters, and that's kind of it's a captured energy. You can't really put it anywhere else. So the cost of however it takes to dig down, and obviously they have the geothermal uh, quite close to the surface. Did you have any sense of how the cost of these facilities in comparison to wind farms would be, or if if it is more costly, do you think it's worth it? So I actually did a bit of reading on this this subject yesterday, Fraser, and it's interesting to see that the estimations are that the cost of the geothermal will be a, so, somewhat equivalent to that of offshore wind, with the, the biggest cost being your, your drilling cost and then your initial the, the establishment. But then effectively, once it's up and running, your costs are next to nothing. So if it's... If it's um, comparable to offshore wind and it's a success you can only see this has been the start of potentially other opportunities throughout throughout the gb gb market no it's very interesting and then i forgive my ignorance are there any existing deep coal mines in the uk that could be sort of hijacked or reused for this purpose Sorry, Fraser, I'm, I'm definitely not aware of that. Um, I know specifically where they're drilling in, in the Eden project is near where they can get to that, that heat source underground. So I, I don't know if you'd need to be a fair bit more selective of where you did your drilling rather than going where the holes were. But I suspect if they, if they got close through the coal mines to those areas of heat, it probably would have been quite problematic in the mining process. Yeah, so there's a just experience back with the gold mines in Johannesburg. They have to have... They have to actually spend a lot of money pumping the heat out with electricity because it gets too hot for the miners to go down. But this seems like a much, well, practical long-term solution for it. Well, thanks, guys. I guess we'll just wrap up for today. That, that was really interesting. Um, you can reach out to Chris at chris.regan at bradyplc.com and Murray at murray.rennie at bradyplc.com and my fr- myself, Fraser McDonald at bradyplc.com. Uh, please follow Brady for more great content. And uh, Chris, Murray and myself will be back on in a month. Cool. Thanks, guys. That was, that was really good. Thank you.